If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, May the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. My guest today in our recording, recording studio on the campus of Stanford University is David Davenport. He's a Hoover Research Fellow specializing in international law and treaties, constitutional federalism, and American politics and law. From 1985 to 2000, David Davenport was the president of Pepperdine University. You can find his columns at Forbes.com and hear his regular radio commentaries on the Salem Radio Network. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Good to be back. So I was flying uh, to and from the East Coast last week, and rather than sleep or watch movies I've already watched before, I did something very productive, and I read a book. More to the point, I read a book that you co-authored, the title of which is How Public Policy Became War. You co-wrote it with Gordon Lloyd, senior fellow at Ashbrook Center, and uh, a past colleague years at the Pepperdine University. Here's what I anticipated about the book. The title, again, How Public Policy Became War. I thought you were going to go after maybe Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay, who really turned House politics into combat and combat art, both to get back the House and then also push through an agenda. I thought maybe you'd go after the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. It was Barack Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, more recently, the mayor of Chicago family, she said, never let a crisis go to waste. I thought you might go after the modern media cycle, which loves to just send stuff at us and boom and chimes about how horrible things, how urgent things are. But no, it turns out that there's a different culprit here, and that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Not a guy you, you normally think of as a henchman in politics, but you kind of go after FDR pretty hard in this book. And specifically what you do, David, is you go after what FDR did in the year 1933. Please explain. You're right, Bill. Uh, this is the third book Gordon Lloyd and I have done together, and we always start in the New Deal. Uh, we've called the New Deal our French Revolution, which changed everything. And so uh, the, the culprit in most of our books is progressivism and the New Deal, mm -hmm. and this is no exception. Um, we, think of, we think of the New Deal in this case as sort of act one of a three or four act play, and the title of this act would be Action and Action Now. Um, before FDR, Public policy was made more through deliberation. Uh, Congress drafted their own bills. There were debates. There were amendments right. uh, and so forth. Uh, and then Roosevelt came in promising in his first inaugural address what he called the American people wanting, action and action now. Right. And so on day one or day two, he sent over a bill that most in Congress had never seen about the bank holiday and closing the banks. And uh, it was received that morning, and it was passed that afternoon with very few having read it. And that really started a very different kind of presidency, a presidency that was based on action. And, and to our surprise, a lot of advisors from Roosevelt said, in some ways, he didn't care what policies we followed. He just wanted to do things. And uh, so he, uh, uh, he rode Congress like a skilled jockey, as David Kennedy said in his great book on, on Roosevelt and, and the New Deal and the Great Depression. Uh, he issued more executive orders than any other president. He built out the alphabet soup agencies, which have become our powerful administrative state. Right. And he really changed the presidency into a dominant wartime executive action branch that's really only gotten 
bigger and more powerful. You say wartime, David, based on the years 1941 to 1945, or wartime in the sense of FDR putting policy in no uncertain terms in terms of urgency. Yes, I, we met the latter. Uh, and in fact, if you listen to his speeches and his radio addresses, he constantly used uh, war metaphors right. in tackling the Great Depression. And, and I think, you know, obviously World War I had been a time when people came together and, and accomplished things together. Mm -hmm. And with that kind of warlike urgency, that's how Roosevelt carried out the presidency. In fact, he said, if this doesn't work, what he was proposing, I'll ask Congress for the one remaining power that I don't have, which is to, to declare war on this emergency. So, I mean, he was prepared to make an official declaration if necessary. So uh, that really changed the nature of how public policy was made and, and changed it uh, permanently and we think not for the better. Let's do presidential flashcards here quite quickly. Let's try to go from 33 to 45 as quick as we can. So 33 comes in and he does the 100-day agenda and does his various wars. 34 is uh, Harry Truman. No, excuse me, Roosevelt's 30. Okay, Eisenhower is 34, Truman is 33, Roosevelt's 32, so my apologies, listener. So 32 does his 100 days and, and starts the war metaphor. What about Harry Truman? What is Harry Truman's war? Well, Harry Truman, of course, had the Korean War, and one of the things that we study in our book is how presidents often took the greater powers that come with a wartime presidency, mm -hmm. and they began to use those in domestic affairs. So we think most visibly of Truman's uh, steel uh, uh, factory seizure right. uh, as demonstrating the kind of power that he thinks a president should have. The Supreme Court in that case beat him back. Right. But but Truman was prepared to do what was necessary to keep America on a war footing. Right. Now, uh, Truman, now, Truman did have a hot war to deal with in Korea. And of FDR course. And obviously a hot war to deal with in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. But now we go to the Eisenhower presidency. It's 34. And he doesn't have a hot war. He has a cold war. Indeed. What, what does Eisenhower do in terms of war? Well, I, of course, Eisenhower was himself a war leader, and so his, his whole style was taking on large projects as, as the, the military leader in World War II. And so we think, of course, of his uh, uh, growth and, and development of all of the federal interstate highway system. Mm -hmm. We think of his addition and building out additional departments of the federal government. Right. Uh, and so in a sense, Ike became the general uh, of, the, of the building and rebuilding of America after World War II. Again, very much an action uh, sort of way of going about things. I, I would give Ike, uh, since I'm from Kansas, and I, I have a, an I like Ike cap at home, I'll give him a little credit. He did work more closely with Congress than some presidents both before and after him. Right. Um, uh, and so his, his administration was a bit more bipartisan. But again, I think it had very much the action sort of uh, agenda. Now the thousand-day presidency of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy is a little harder to measure. Uh, in, in, in such a short period of time. I mean, his, his rhetoric was certainly very warlike. He's, mm -hmm. As you say, uh, the Cold War, I think, fueled a lot of presidential rhetoric in those times. Right. Uh, one of his most famous campaign speeches was his I'm not satisfied speech. You know, here are all the things that Ike has done, but I'm not satisfied, you know. Right. And we have, a, we have a defense gap. We have a missile gap, mm -hmm. and we need to correct that. 
uh, and, uh, we, and and so th there was a there was a warlike at least rhetoric to the Kennedy administration. Though again, in such a short presidency, hard for him to carry out this the sort of big changes other presidents have made. I think David, maybe with Kennedy, what you can argue is it was a war on complacency. You know, the famous Kennedy word at all times is vigor, vigor, as he would have said. Yes. And Kennedy is offering energy and the new frontier and the Peace Corps and volunteerism right. and action. Whereas we look at the fifties as a sleepier era. So maybe that's Kennedy's. Now we go to. LBJ. Yeah, that's really, um, uh, we didn't talk a great deal about the presidents between FDR and LBJ because we see LBJ and the Great Society as the next great domestic war president. 64 and 65 in the Great Society, the war on, beginning of the war on poverty and the beginning of a lot of big government solutions with urgency. Precisely. Right? And, and the war on poverty, I think, is, it deserves special attention. Um, Johnson had called his advisors to the ranch in December uh, of 1963, only a month or so after he had become president, and, and told them he wanted to do something about poverty, and he had carved $500 million out of the federal budget mm -hmm. and asked them to come up with some programs. Right. Well, there wasn't a lot known at the time about anti-poverty policy, and so his advisors came back with a series of what, what we would think of as small pilot programs. But LBJ was not a small pilot program kind of guy. Right. And so he stands up in January, just a few weeks later, and declares, quote, war on poverty, unconditional war on poverty so that we can eliminate it, he said. And um, this, I think, is typical and, and really launched a series of these domestic wars, war on crime, war on drugs, war on terror, war on energy consumption. Right. And, and, and Johnson kicked them off in a way that they continued, which is it was long on rhetoric but short on policy. Right. Johnson did not have a lot of specifics. Not a lot of specifics were known about how to fight poverty. Uh, in fact, in, in that same speech, when he declared it, he said, whatever the cause, quote, unquote, you know, the, we're going we're gonna to go after it. So we hadn't really studied it carefully. We didn't really know who the enemy was. We didn't know exactly how, what the tactics might be. Mm -hmm. But we had a lot of rhetoric about it. And, and so lots of departments of the federal government and right. a lot of money is pu pulled together to take on this kind of warlike effort. And it really launched what we call in our book the domestic policy war. Right. Now, here's a problem I have uh, in terms of using phrases like the war on poverty and the war on terror, war on drugs, and so forth. They're kind of open-ended solutions. When you think about fighting World War II or fighting the American Civil War, these are wars with very defined conclusions. Enemy surrenders. But in the case of the war on poverty, David, what's the goal? Is the goal to eradicate poverty in the United States? That's not going to happen. The war on drugs. Is the war on drugs is the goal to eradicate drug use completely? That's not going to happen only in utopian society. So um, this to me is the problem. I say this is a recovering speechwriter. You say war, it offers urgency to it. But what is the goal? Well, uh, we argue in our book that the goal is to increase presidential federal power and, well, the and goal is to perpetuate presidential power, power. Right. precisely. Right. Uh, and and a lot, it's a lot more likely that you will leave a legacy because, as you say, these wars never end. The problems that they address never end. Right. So it's much there's a much greater chance you're going to leave a legacy or you're going to make a permanent change in the federal budget and programs by declaring a war than simply passing a bill right. or, or having a policy. And so it is powerful rhetorically. 
it, it, it is likely to generate support. It is likely to, to get funding from Congress at some level. It's likely to get the attention of federal agencies, and it's likely to go on a long time. You may remember Ronald Reagan quipped uh, a, a long time ago. He said the federal government declared war on poverty, and poverty won. Right. <laughs> and, but but uh, here we are still fighting it all these years later. All right, so you mentioned Ronald Reagan, so let's talk about Ronald Reagan, but also Richard Nixon, two Republicans who come along, Nixon in 1960. And Reagan in 1981. Nixon liked government solutions. Nixon creates the EPA. Nixon is open to bigger government. Reagan, on the other hand, is, you know, we see him as the antithesis of FDR, but Reagan himself also falls prey to the war metaphor. Yeah, um, starting with Nixon, as you say, Nixon t t turned out to be, I think, what we would call today, what a conservative would call today, a big government uh, yeah, Republican. This, this is, by the way, where you don't want George Shultz in the studio because he would, he would defend no. his old boss here. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think I shared with you on a previous podcast, I actually worked on uh, wage and price controls in the Nixon administration as yes. a college intern. Right. And... Uh, uh, when I saw Nixon later in his life and, and we talked about it, he said, well, that wasn't one of our better ideas, was it? And Schultz agrees. <laughs> so yes, yes. He, he even he acknowledges there were some excesses. But in any right. event, uh, actually, the war on crime, most people think that Nixon started the war on crime. It was actually declared by Lyndon Johnson as well. Mm -hmm. But Nixon, I think, is largely credited with accelerating it and, yes. and people associated with Nixon. And, of course, an additional factor there is that Crime, I mean, that's really a matter of local policy. That's not a matter of federal policy. Right. Uh, and so for the federal government to, to come in to, you know, declare war on crime, uh, begin providing military equipment to local police forces to change the character of the war, right. to provide massive federal funding to try to do federal sentencing guidelines, I mean, besides an executive takeover, this was a federal takeover of something that was essentially a local policy matter before then. And, and I think you'd have to say the whole character of crime has changed. I mean, you right. look at what police forces are armed with and, and carrying out today. Um, and then, of course, Nixon is, is known for, and, and Bush and Reagan were enthusiastic in accelerating the war on drugs. Right. And that is today, I think, one of the most controversial at all, of all, where we really didn't know who the enemy was. We didn't know if we were going after supply or demand. Uh, we didn't really, we, we didn't have a very thoughtful approach. And so what we've managed to do there is put more people in jail than any other uh, country on earth and, and put first-time drug offenders in jail and generally have them come out worse people and not better. And so now you have people on both the left and the right saying, well, this is a big mistake. But once you've declared, one of the problems with the war metaphor, once you've declared war, it's really hard to have thoughtful policy discussions. The, right. the declaration of war kind of prevents further policy development because, for crying out loud, we're at war. Right. You know, so we can't stop and talk about this. So, um, yeah, those those were, you know, those continue to be very problematic today. And in fact, uh, uh, Joe Biden is in trouble. I don't know if you saw that, but he's under attack because a Senate Judiciary Chair. He accelerated both the war on drugs and the war on crime. And this is the 94 crime bill, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, of course, those are not popular anymore. That, right. that, those wars have fallen out of favor with Democrats, but you can't really stop a war. I mean, it's hard to stop a war because you haven't won it. Right, so it seems to me one trap here is when a president declares a war, a domestic war, not a foreign war, a military war. That's um, the Vietnam question, David. And how do you... How do you retreat? Peace with honor. <laughs> how, do you, how do you declare victory and retreat? Yeah. No, that's right. And, and just a little side story. I think it was earlier this year, 
the President's Council of Economic Advisors tried to declare that, that we had won the war on poverty. Well, right. if you read the fine print, all they did was change the definition of poverty. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, as you commented earlier, I don't think anybody really believes poverty has yeah. been eradicated in this country. Um, so, uh, you know, that was their own effort, I think, to wrestle with that. And, and I don't think it's going to work. I don't think the war on poverty is over by a long stretch. Right. Uh, let's talk Trump for a second. So here is a, a president who ran against Washington, famously calls Washington the swamp. And he runs against Washington the same way George W. Bush ran against Washington, the same way Bill Clinton, in many regards, ran against Washington. The elder Bush ran against Washington. Ronald Reagan ran against Washington. Do we see a pattern here? Barack Obama doesn't run against Washington, but he runs as an outsider, even though he's an insider. It's a very right. nuanced thing he does. But Trump comes to town probably better suited than any president in modern history to really tear into the federal government because he's not part of the system. He's not only not a Washingtonian, but he's not really a politician either. And Donald Trump, what do you make of Donald Trump? I see a guy who's really not that interested in dismantling government. No, uh, let me say first, with respect to Trump and the war issue, and then I'd like to comment secondly on Trump as a, as a, as a leader in Washington. First, on the war matter, you know, Trump has inherited a very powerful unilateral presidency. That's part of the war power is the president becomes the commander in chief right. of poverty or crime or drugs or whatever it is. And, and so uh, Trump with, you know, his executive orders and, and his sort of unilateral approach, well, I'm going to uh, not follow this treaty and I'm going to, you know, declare uh, tariffs and start a trade war. Yeah, that's Trump's war, I suppose, right now is his trade war. Um, so Trump has, has inherited and I would say accelerated the unilateral presidency, which is part of, of public policy becoming war. Right. As far as a leader in Washington, my, my take on that is that, that Trump is what we would call, I think, a disruptor business leader. You know, in Silicon Valley, we have these disruptor companies that Amazon and Uber and others who, that come in and change a whole industry, disrupt right. and change a whole industry. Right. I think Trump would like to be a disruptor president, but he either doesn't have ideas or he won't have the time and patience to actually create something new in its place. Mm -hmm. You know, Uber doesn't just attack the taxi business, it develops a new model for how to do transportation. Right. Amazon develops a new way to retail and to sell. Well, Trump either, again, lacks the imagination to come up with the replacement for what he, the swamp he wants to drain, the government he wants to disrupt. Right. Or, you know, practic frankly, no one-term president would be any likely, would have any great likelihood of changing how the federal government operates. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty tough model to be a disruptor president, but really not have replacements in mind and not even have the support of your own party in Washington to get that done. He is a disruptor in terms of a lot of presidential tradition and a lot of presidential protocol. Right. The things he tweets, the way he acts right. in the office, um, now with received issues like executive privilege, he's disrupting tradition in those regards, but he's not a disruptor in terms of how the president treats government itself, and that's that's a question moving forward with him. Does he really want to go after institutions and government or not? I don't think he does, David, because he ran in 2016 with no interest in touching Social Security, no interest in going after Medicare. Well, then let it pass by. No, I think I think you're right about that, Bill. And I and he also has a bit of a pattern of you know he'll pick a fight and then he'll actually back down rather quickly. Right. Uh, so I mean that's it's pretty tough to really disrupt some, something if you're not going to stay the course. A disruptive business leadership is a long game and a persistent one, and we we're not seeing that from Trump. 
Okay. In the book, David, you mentioned uh, FTR once saying um, that he saw government as a three-horse team. Right. That three horses need to plow the field. Right. Those three horses would be the three branches of government. Right. Let's talk about the horses and whether or not they're in tandem right now, because what I see is a largely dysfunctional Congress, a Congress that's really become weak. It's one way to look at members of Congress is they go to Congress and they really aren't interested so much in doing things as co in Congress as much as getting reelected. Right. And so you see that really in lack of product right now in that institution. The presidency is what it is right now. But let's look at that third horse, the judiciary, because I think this is something that rose to prominence during the Obama years, the courts settling matters, Obamacare. And we see this right. now in the Trump presidency. The Supreme Court is something of a tiebreaker now. Just you have a problem in Washington, it's going to go into the legal system. Here in California, for example, the California Attorney General, uh, Javier Becerra, has now filed 50 lawsuits against the, the Trump administration. We're just letting the courts settle matters. Is the three-horse system working right now? Well, I think clearly not. And, and when I taught public policy at uh, Pepperdine, um, we would read the Federalist Papers and I would say, so of the three branches of government to my students, which do you think the founders thought would be the most powerful? Well, clearly it would be the legislature, according to the founders. Right. And they were worried whether there would be enough, quote, energy, unquote, in the presidency to be effective. Mm -hmm. And they, they allowed us how the judiciary would be, quote, the least of the branches, having neither the power of the purse nor the sword. Yeah. And then I say, okay, so how would you rate those now? Well, either the presidency or the court is number one, clearly, and the legislature is bringing up the rear. So we're way off what the founders uh, foresaw. Um, Gordon and I in our book actually argue that, that we think Congress um, is the key to solving this war problem. And, and we think two things need to be done, neither of which will be easy. Uh, we need to make Congress great again. I actually own that Trump, that cap now from my visits to Washington researching this book. Uh, it's, it's in the Trump style, but it says make Congress great again instead okay. of America. Um, Congress has given up its war powers. It's given up the leadership of its spending power. You look at the Trump revolving door cabinet and their, their approval of cabinet nominations is kind of meaningless. Um, Congress right now does judges. Well, that's about it. And yes, that's about it. Otherwise, you see Nancy Pelosi. She, you want to get you want to get fifteen minutes of silence, Nancy Pelosi. Have her just recite everything <laughs> the House has done this year. Right. <laughs> well, we propose the following. Yeah. But what have you so, actually passed the Senate? But like, coming quickly on the heels of that bill, mm -hmm. we think you have to also make Congress deliberative again. So we argue in the book, and we say, okay, public policy has become war, but, but what did it used to be, or what was it supposed to be instead of war? Right. Well, we argue it was supposed to be deliberation, uh, that that's how the founders set things up, that you would send people to Washington and they would deliberate on the right. best things to do. So we think that almost equally uh, important is to make Congress deliberative again. So We've been passing everything not in a bipartisan way, but most of the key things that have been passed have been on party line votes. And party identity voting has gone way up in Congress in the right. last few decades. What was Obama's signature uh, legislation, Obamacare, passed on a party line vote. What is Trump so far? Tax reform passed on a party line vote. So, um, and where's the power gone? It doesn't belong really now to the committees and the committee chairs anymore. It's the majority leaders and minority leaders who are essentially party officials, not really Senate and House officials in a way. Right. And so there's very little deliberation. Mm -hmm. In fact, we say in the book, you know, the, the, the U.S. Senate once called the world's greatest deliberative body. Well, it, it hardly deliberates anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And so we think we are going to have to not only make Congress great again, but deliberative again, get away from this notion of party line votes and the party decides everything, return power to committees and to chairs, which could be done, have actual you know, amendments and hearings and deliberations before bills can be uh, voted upon. They can't be pulled out in surprise at the last minute uh, as Roosevelt started with the banking bill. Um, so uh, we actually think that Congress holds more cards than any other branch in terms of moving back toward deliberation. Um, Gordon and I disagree with one another about the courts. Gordon believes that there are sufficient checks in the Constitution about the courts. We just haven't exercised them. That, that Congress has the power to limit the jurisdiction and control the jurisdiction of federal courts. It has the ability to fund and defund courts and how many right. courts and how many judges, and that it just hasn't exercised that power. I, I argue, and Gordon and I go back and forth on this, I argue that if the founders made one mistake in the Constitution, it was not having sufficient checks on the judiciary, mm -hmm. which I think was meant to be a break, right. but is now an engine of change. Let's talk about one other thing, the Constitutional Convention. Um, this comes up from time to time in our in our country. Somebody starts floating the idea of having a constitutional convention. You talk in the book about how the founders did it back in the day. The one thing that struck me is they did it pretty much behind closed doors. That I think is what uh, Jefferson wanted transparency. I right. think right, absolutely right. And the other founders said no. <laughs> we, yeah. we have to get this done, and we have to get it done fast. Right. Well, how, it's, how, it was a great case study because what what you got behind closed doors. Right was you got people's ability to change their minds. You, right. you got the ability to moderate, deliberate, compromise. I mean, Madison, who's thought of as the father of the Constitution, proposed several key ideas that he really believed in that didn't make it. Right. But often they were replaced by something else, and he seemed to be content that that was an appropriate process. Well, if the real purpose now of putting forward bills is to allow people to take popular votes so they can win re-election and to make speeches right. that will allow re-election. Well, that's not going to be done behind closed doors. And frankly, with the doors as open as they are now, it becomes much more difficult to compromise. If people from two parties get together to try to fix something, what do they call it? They call it a gang. Right. The gang of nine is going to get together and meet in somebody's broom closet, you know, yes. in secret yes. to see if they can hammer out a solution. Well, that's not, I mean, that was meant to be the, the mainstream of how the Senate works, not often a broom closet with a gang. Mm -hmm. So um, you're right. I think, I think it's too late to undo transparency, but it's not too late to restore moderation and bipartisanship and deliberation. Right. And, and uh, so I think that's the way we're going to have to go. Two things stated uh, about the Constitutional Convention to me, David. Number one, uh, it took nine of 15 states back in the day to ratify it. So if you push this out to 50 states, maybe 51. I see some uh, Republican lawmakers in Illinois. I want to make Chicago the 51st state. God help <laughs> us all. But you would have to get 35 out of 50 states now to agree on matters. And let me just tick off a few things that would become hobby horses for people if you actually open up the Constitution. It would be the question of presidential eligibility, natural-born citizens, which would probably have to be revised. Right. Birthright citizenship would right. be revisited. The Second Amendment and guns. What sure. happens about that? Uh, there's no mention of women or men in the Constitution, which um, a few very woke Democrats have been pointing out uh, <laughs> rather silly. The Senate, another hobby horse for Democrats running progressives right now, we have to redo the Senate. We have to make it more geographically in line with the rest of the country. What is Wyoming have the same sway as California and the Electoral College? So, right. my goodness, 
all the things they'd have to visit, how would you get 35 states on the same page? Well, I mean, you're right. That seems very unlikely. And, And I'm among those who feel that the risks of a constitutional convention outweigh the likely benefits, right. even if you could get one. Um, once you have one, anything can come on the table. And, yes. and of course, what the founders feared was uh, factions, uh, you know, people getting a lot of energy behind something right. that maybe doesn't have sustaining power, isn't really the will of the people, but it gets on, uh, right. the train gets rolling at something like, like a, a new constitutional uh, convention. What, what Gordon and I, what Gordon and I noticed is that filter the constitution set up a lot of filters that would require deliberation the electoral college uh, the senate representation uh, checks and balances, checks and balances separations right. of power all of those things were to slow things down and to and to require deliberation mm-hmm. Progressives today, their solution is let's get rid of the filters because that's what's standing in the way of direct democracy, of the people having their say. And we say, no, it's actually the opposite. We need the filters more than ever because that's what's going to help us restore deliberation. Um, And so uh, our message is we don't – in our view, we don't need to change a lot of the constitutional processes, but we need to actually follow them and use them and and to regain some of the benefits like moderation, deliberation, bipartisanship that really are available because of those filters. Mm -hmm. Uh, A word appears throughout the book. The word is the word line. What is the line? Well, uh, all analogies are imperfect. And so we take uh, Plato's divided line from the Republic in our last chapter. Um, And if you remember, Plato's divided line was that you had philosophers like him, in a sense, above the line, who really saw truth as it was and, and, and could strive for perfection and idealism. And then you had the people who were living below the line, who saw only shadows, uh, didn't understand uh, the true ideals, uh, and so forth. Well, we we use this kind of, we we strain Plato's use of it a bit, and we say that in America, let's think about government, especially government in Washington, as above the line, the Constitution, the representative government. Uh, And we think of, of the people below the line and then we think, importantly, what's at the line? What stands between the people and their government that should make all of this work better? And we find at the line these filters I mentioned, constitutional structures that would encourage deliberation. We also find at the line federalism, people doing things locally and at a state level that should filter and help that process. Right. We also find civic associations and churches and so forth that, that would allow people to get together and to form ideas and to shape them and send them back and forth uh, up and down the line. So above the line in Congress, we recommend, as I said earlier, making Congress great again, making Congress deliberative again. We make a number of specific proposals. Below the line, we think the people really ought to be doing much more about civic education, which is, you know, from a prior podcast is one of my great concerns and interests and also more civic engagement. But we think the number one thing we could do is to work at the line and to try to strengthen again and understand better the case for these constitutional structures and to reinvigorate civic associations, not just to be lobbying groups, which so many of them have become, um, but to be actually formative in, in people's ideas and opinions and characters and personalities. 
Okay. Let me close with a lesson in speech writing, David Davenport. Lessons I've learned bitterly the hard way. <laughs> you write a speech for a boss, for an office holder. You give the speech, the draft of the office holder. The office holder edits it, revises it, puts in his or her favorite words. You then go to your boss, your client, and say, sir, ma'am, I don't like this word. At which point they turn to you and say, okay, smart guy, do you have a better word? So, smart guy, David Davenport, <laughs> is there a better word to use than war? Because while we can talk about the use of the word war as leading to a lot of problems with the political divide, the cultural divide, which you point out in your book, on the other hand, it's a very effective word. It's only three letters, fits easily into <laughs> headlines, it's clickbait. For the average voter out there who maybe is not paying attention to a lot of policy, the president declares war on X, Y, or Z, boy, he must be serious. So. Smart guy, David Davenport, give me a better word to use than well, war. We, you must have been sitting around in, in yeah. Gordon's and my author, co-author meetings, and yes. uh, we thought about calling this how public policy became war and not deliberation. Yes. We thought, no, we'll sell more books if we just leave the war <laughs> by itself. But, but what we really are advocating in the place of war is deliberation. Deliberation. That, that people in Washington and elsewhere have to learn to talk again. They have yeah. to learn to deliberate again. Uh, they, words like moderation, bipartisanship can't be compromised. Those can't be dirty words. Mm -hmm. and, and that is a long, slow process. Um, but uh, and, and we, don't, we don't think it's even realistic to get rid of the war metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, our thought is to manage the war metaphor and right. to see if we can reduce its impact, augment it with other deliberative metaphors. Mm -hmm. Um, so that we can move back from the brink, if you will, and right. so that we're not constantly. Um, we, we argue that right that the close cousin of war is the national emergency. So right. we live under all of these policy wars that never end. We have 31 states of national emergency, all of which increase federal power. They increase the president's power at the expense of Congress, and and they lead to action but not deliberation. And so um, our word would be deliberation, but we realize that's not as as exciting as war. No, it's a process word. So here's the chicken and egg question, David Davenport. A uh, president declares war on something, and we're in this age of hyper-partisanship where you have to use hard language, and the media drives stories, and politicians use harsh words. Is the president's use of war driving this train, or does the train push the president using the word war? In other words, if you stopped using the word war, is that going to calm down politics, or is a president almost forced to do this given the age in which he operates? You know, I, I, our own view would be that that the hyper-partisanship and the rhetoric and the 24-7 media cycle and all of that has accelerated the war, um, but that the war is deeper than that. Yes. Uh, in, in our view, the war is that presidents figured out this was a way to take over domestic policy and to have greater power, from Roosevelt to Johnson to Nixon, right on through. Right that it's really more about power than it is about the rhetoric. And so if you merely took away the word war, um, we don't think that's enough. What we think is that we have to begin to check presidential power. We have to be, as a people, content that we don't have an action president trying to, quote, do something, unquote, about every problem that, you know, war on cancer, war on obesity, war on trade, uh, war on climate change. Um, uh, that we're going to have to become a more thoughtful and deliberative people because these are complex problems. And, uh, 
you, you just look for small signs of hope. I mean, I think I th members of both parties recently got together to work on a federal budget. Well, you'd think that would be basic, but that hasn't been done in a long time. And, and some Republicans and Democrats are nervous about Trump's war powers. Well, maybe that will cause them to, to talk about Congress be, you know, taking back some of its war powers. So it, 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 we don't quite know where it's going to happen, but we think there's going to be an opportunity for Congress to begin to claw back power. And we think that's, that's more at the heart of the war problem we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And to us, the hyperpartisanship and, and all the rest is really more a manifestation than it is a cause. Right. So this is your third book with Gordon Lloyd. What's next? Well, we've already made a proposal to the Hoover Institution Press, and glad you asked. Um, one of our favorite of the three books, my, my personal favorite, actually, I shouldn't say this since this new one's out and I want people to read it, but mm -hmm. I loved our book, Rugged Individualism, Dead or Alive, where we took sort of an important philosophical concept about America and, and about conservatism, if you will. Herbert Hoover's phrase. And we explored right. how that's fared in history and what's mm -hmm. happened to it. We're, our next book idea that we're pitching to the press is a book on equality of opportunity, dead or alive. And um, we think that's highly relevant in the debate of income equality and, and equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Are we still an equality of opportunity nation or have we really completely moved away from that also to something the, else? Also the conversation of equality of opportunity versus equal opportunity. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So that's the next project we're working on. We like to take on these modest uh, things and, and in 150 pages or 200 pages, try to shed a little light on it and, and give people something to work through. Sounds good. Look forward to seeing it. David Davenport, enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States, in this case, Donald Trump and the powers of a president. War powers. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, how about signing up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work on David Davenport and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. David Davenport and Gordon Lloyd's book, How Public Policy Became War, it's a quick read, 155 pages. So no excuse to turn it down. You'll get through it very fast. You'll learn a lot about FDR, the modern presidency, the roots of the Republican, the Federalist Papers. Get it by all means. You can get it through Hoover Press, correct? Yes, or Amazon is restocking. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.